Hello and welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast from the Radiology Leadership Institute that profiles radiologists as leaders, seeking insight and inspiration from a variety of perspectives and experiences. I'm Jeff Rubin. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Yoshimi Anzai, Professor of Radiology at the University of Utah and Director of Value and Safety for Integrated Enterprise Imaging for the University of Utah Health. Following medical school and three years in radiology and otolaryngology residency programs in Japan, Dr. Anzai immigrated to the United States, where she also completed a full radiology residency at the University of Michigan, a fellowship in neuroradiology, and a master's degree in public health from the University of Washington. A passionate promoter of health services research, Dr. Anzai has been a leader in training academic radiologists to establish the value of radiology through comparative effectiveness research and in establishing appropriate use criteria. A past president of the Association of University Radiologists, the American Society of Head and Neck Radiology, the American Association for Women Radiologists, and recent recipient of the gold medal from the RSNA and the ASHNR, Dr. Anzai has carved a unique leadership path in American radiology. Yoshimi, welcome. Thank you so much, Jeff. So glad to be here. So tell us a little bit about where you were born and raised. So I was born in Japan, a place is called Yokosuka, which is a little south of Tokyo, about maybe 45, 50 minutes by train ride. And I was just a little nerd, precocious girl. And I was very curious about many things. And then some reason... I wanted to be a little different than other people, which was kind of like my things ever since I was a child. So Japan is very sort of an ordinary society that many people try not to make a way, try not to be different. So tend to be follow the cloud. And I was different. And I had a sister who is more traditional Japanese woman. She was beautiful. She was very obedient, and she listened carefully to what other people instruct her. She was very beautiful. She had a very fair skin. So the one thing about Asian society, not only Japan, but maybe other countries, particularly for girl or women, the skin pigmentation has uh, something to do with their beauties. So it's it's very funny that I, I now know that people in America go to Santan, you know, salons or lying on a beach to get more darker. But at the Japanese, particularly for many Asian cultures, it's completely opposite. They have to have a kind of fair white skin. So they have a lot of cosmetic product for, you know, whitening, whitening essence and cream and moisturizers and whatever. And I was just born with a little darker skin tone. So when we were growing up together, she was older and then she has beautiful smiles and a very graceful woman. And everybody looked at her and said, oh, my God, Masami-chan is so beautiful, so lovely and, you know, graceful like a French doll. And I was just standing usually you know, next to her, and then I was kind of not smiling, the more determined look. And 
people tend to look at her and they say, you know, she kind of like, I, I kind of noticed that people lose some sort of sentences. I said, mm, oh, Stuart Yoshimi, I heard she's very good at math. <laughs> and I kind of like getting got a sense that I saw. So that means I am not a beautiful, I'm not like a French doll. So I very early on, they realized I have to have a different career path, <laughs> which is sort of interesting, but it really struck me that there won't be prints on the white horses that are coming in with a sword and then ask me to marry him. So it was a very interesting moment, but it really distinctly affected my decision to do many things. So how old, how old were you when you started having these awareness? I think it's earlier as like five or yeah, six or even earlier that uh, because uh, I think it's just a you know my mother always made same clothes like a tailored suits and a dress and so we were wearing the same clothes so my my sister was beautiful and everybody was com- complimenting her beauties and then so she they compliment my math skill so <laughs> you get idea that even though the small child that you know that you are not as beautiful as your sisters or graceful or whatever so i think that facilitated me to study harder <laughs> tell us a little bit about your parents you know what did they do for a living and how you know did they engage around these perspectives of you know, beauty being the focus of how your sister was viewed. And, you know, did they advise you and contextualize all of this for you? You know, my, actually, it's interesting. My family, actually, my parents had a flower shop in Japan. So I was the only physician from my family, but my father was more intelligent that he likes to read a book rather than doing own business. So my mother was main folk, you know, driver to push the business and had an employee. So they're quite a large sort of operations. But my father had not a good health. So he had a gastric ulcer. And back in Japan, gastric ulcer was considered to be pretty cancerous state. So he ended up is having a subtotal gastrectomy. Because of the surgical complication, he passed away very early ages. So I was 12. My mother basically raised my sister and myself. And then she was actually a very skilled businesswoman, even though the flower shop, but it's like a selling a one flower at that time, but making a contract with wedding or music halls, entertainment, so that we have a more larger sort of operation. And he has to negotiate and all of those things that are more business-minded. And then she grew business quite a bit after my father passed away. So she was a quite talented person with determination, but I had a lot of disciplines. I think it's not really our, my parents, but the whole Japanese society, that women have to be quiet, obedient, and beautiful, sit still. And uh, that is not really specific to my parents, but the society had that notion of expectation for girls to be more, I don't know, visually appealing or not speaking up too much (laughs) like I do. (laughs) So I think it's more societal expectation that women have to look like this or 
you know, act like this. And then there's a certain small, very narrow-minded fixation of what social expectation for women might be. You know, it's interesting on one side, you know, you're clearly articulating the social expectations for women, but it seems that your mother represented something very different because Mm -hmm. she was, you know, a business leader and somebody who became head of the household. And so, I mean, did you see that in her, that she was somebody who, you know, essentially went against the, the trend and the grain and that she didn't fit this societal expectation? I think so. I kind of observed her struggle that she wanted to be fit in the society, but she had a passion to do something more than what the woman expected to do. I think they have a strong influence on me, how I grew up, grown up to try to do something more than just average or try to go far and beyond. And I think that's really important to see what parents do rather than parents tell me to do because the talk is talk but the really seeing actual action makes a huge impact now was she encouraging of you and your sister's education throughout your childhood i think so she was kind of results oriented <laughs> very outcome oriented a person so she didn't care if i study hard or i didn't study at all or as long as the report cards are good. So it's like a typical Asian parents have to have a straight A. And if you're kind of looking at the report cards, like what's going on? What is this A minus? So that kind of person. So the process, I was more wanted to have a process to be acknowledged, but she was more outcome focused. So as long as I get a good grade, I think she was very happy. And as you were growing up, did you, you know, seek activities for which you could earn the kind of praise that you heard your sister receiving for her appearance? Uh, That's an interesting question. So when you have a sister that is so beautiful that you can't compete, then I think you work harder. So I remember I was telling my mother that please don't make the same clothes. I don't want to be same as my sister. I want to wear something different. I want to be you know, my own clothes rather than same dress, same jacket, same skirt. I want to have a something unique. So I think at that creating a more sort of like exploring world sort of a view of myself that I need to be unique. I cannot be the same as my sister. And it was interesting that it affected my personal traits uh, <laughs> so much. <laughs> but uh, it was it was in a positive way. I don't think it was a negative because I think that, that is something that I still acknowledge that the feeling that I had in that childhood. But at the same time, it really helped me to explore my own pathway. Other than excelling in school, did you pursue opportunities to excel in, in music or in art or in sports? Any any hobbies or activities as a child? So my mother was busy. So my my mother put me all sort of after school activity. I have a practically every single day something to do, you know, like a Japanese calligraphy to abacus for calculation things and English conversation to art, the piano lesson, practically only day that I didn't have anything was Sunday. 
And the school goes on from Monday through Saturday in Japan. So basically, six days a week, I have something else to do and make me very you know, busy. And also, that's a good thing, right? You have a lot of things to occupy. Don't know that anything turned out. I didn't like a piano lesson. So I didn't become a pianist. <laughs> I was okay for other things. It's a good thing to explore different things. I wasn't an avid athlete, but I did a basketball in a junior high schools, and then I played tennis in the college. So I had a some athletic skill, but not competing kind of a varsity type of skill. <laughs> I know that the educational systems vary from country to country, and you know, of course, in the U.S. We're used to going to college for pre-medical education or some you know, other related education followed by medical school. How does post-high school education, how is that structured in Japan? So that's a great question because in America, you have to graduate and go to college and decide what to do. But uh, in Japan, you have to know what graduate school you are going when you are high school. So the undergrad is usually combined with the graduate school. So pre-med is only two years. So that's sort of an undergrad. Do like a philosophy, psychologies, and, you know, German or other second languages. And then the four years of medical school is all attached in the same curriculum. So when you apply to college or undergrad and a high school, you know you're applying for medical school or law school or business school or whatever. You applied to medical school essentially straight out of high school. Yes. So tell us a little bit about how and when you decided that you wanted to be a physician. Part of that decision was perhaps the loss of my father due to gastric ulcer, which, you know, we know that consider it's not a precancerous disease, but because of the, I guess, the imaging appearances may not hugely different for early stage gastric cancer. And then obviously medicine is an evolving field. There's a lot of, you know, mistakes we make or wrong assumption we made in that throughout the courses. But I think it's just losing him in a perioperative period of really within two weeks. And then that made me to sort of pursue, like, why couldn't save him? Why this is happening when he was so young and had so much more life to live? And I think that that is the one thing. And the other things is I wanted to be able to help other people and then make the impact. And I think medicine seems to be there's so much more to offer, even though it's harder to become physician. So I want it to be meaningful and impactful for other people's life. Yeah, fantastic. Very well stated. So where did you end up going and you know what did you study? So I end up with going to Chiba University, which I don't know if you know the Chiba biopsy needle, which is a well-known biopsy needle for like a liver cancer or the biopsy. So that biopsy needle came from Chiba University, which is a little east of Tokyo, perhaps another hour east to, to, from the Tokyo. And there was a quite a few excellent 
physician came from the Chiba University, Dr. Kawasaki, or the Kawasaki disease that, you know, the coronary artery aneurysm in mean, the children, Jeff. Dr. Kawasaki graduated from Chiba University and another person, that Dr. Shirakabe, who created double contrast upper GI study. He was also graduate from Chiba University. So a lot of our very famous professors were there. And it's just by chance that I was really like, I am going to Tokyo University or Kyoto University. But it feels like I that was good fit for me. And I learned a lot from their education. So I had a really wonderful time. Fantastic. And so what, so what you mentioned that the first two years are more general, what sorts of things did you study in anticipation of beginning medicine at Chiba? So basically first two years is, you know, philosophy, psychology, physics, again, chemistry, biology, everything, just like a STEM field. In addition to some medical ethics, I think that's really important for a physician, not just be just a you know, STEM only academic side, but really understanding a human psychology, what to do, what not to do. And I learned German a little bit. I can't speak that well, but (laughs) I know that how complex those German world is. I think some old traditional medicine was taught in Germany back in Japan. So I took a little bit of that. It was great. And then I think I told the end of second year, we already had anatomy. So it's more like a prepping for this medical school education. It's a very efficient system because you don't spend four years in undergrad and repeating the same things you did in high school or advanced math and statistics. So it was a shorter path to get to the medical school. And through these years, did you pursue any leadership roles? Not really. I wasn't really top medical students, Jeff. <laughs> I was sort of like a little above the middle of the pack kind of uh, places, but I was captain of a tennis club. <laughs> Maybe that's what we call the leadership. <laughs> and I was playing a lot of tennis and when I was in medical school, and I thought that was really the great things. Instead of like sitting in a class and studying all day long, I was a pretty much out there in the field, and I was farther even darker because I was under the sun all the time. <laughs> Captain of which club? Tennis club. Ten- oh, the tennis club. I see. So in Japan, it's actually soft tennis, not a hard tennis. So it's a little different. Like they play on the Japan and Korea, some Asian country, but it's all doubles only, no singles. So you must have been pretty good to be captain of the team. <laughs> I'm not quite sure that I, I was so good, but I, I yes, we, we went pretty good national tournament and we had a, like many weeks of camp and in practice every day. And it was really great experience. I created a lot of a leadership or teamwork, right? Because it's a team. Everything has to be under the team. So we want to make sure we take care of each other. And I think that's a really great lesson I learned in just playing tennis instead of sitting in the classes in the medical school. That's excellent. Being exposed to teamwork at that stage. Oftentimes, people look at tennis as an individual pursuit, but clearly within the context of your club, it was more than an individual mm-hmm. pursuit. And what led you to pursue radiology? Another great question. I was interested in kind of head and neck ever since medical school that uh, 
It's very complex, detailed anatomy, and all the stuff, vessels, you know, external carotid arteries and cranial nerve going into certain different places. And I was very fascinated about just kind of below the brain above the shoulder. <laughs> so I was thinking about going to plastic surgery first because there was a lot of a big surgery like liver cancers and, you know, bisected and kind of surgery was the main field in medicine back then. And then I kind of wanted to be different. So the plastic surgery was such a new field, more creating, you know, some function and a cosmesis back to the patient. I was not interested in, you know, injecting fillers and then lips and then all this facelift, but rather like somebody who didn't have an ear or malformed ear and you use a cartilage to create a new ear that looks like the same, you know, both sides or creating a different parts of the body that lost or injured and it creating a different sort of a face or nose. And I, I was interested in kind of doing something more creative and more related to function rather than big cancer surgery. So I went to Tokyo University where the, the plastic surgery training program was. And also a friend of mine who are in a tennis club, my friend, went there together. And I said, well, we want to be a plastic surgery resident. So we went there and then they said, hmm. And I said, we don't take women, but we'll take a boy. <laughs> so he was immediately accepted, but I was rejected at the door. It was, you know, it, 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 you can't imagine now that somebody saying that in front of somebody's face, but back then it was totally normal. And so the, it's such a new field and there was only men. So I was a little shocked about, again, setback happened in a life, right? <laughs> so you have to go back. So I was sort of like a thinking whether ENT surgery versus in the radiology, actually, radiology training in Japan have a radiation oncology combined. So they approached me that, uh, you know, you should come to radiology. I was very heavily recruited to Department of Radiology because they just had an MRI machine installed and then they do treatment in addition to diagnosis. So you can actually imagine you can diagnose like hedonic cancer and you can scope them, you can treat them with radiation field and you can image them later and see how that treatment was effective. So it was very comprehensive training. And also they didn't have a woman. And instead of, a, well, we don't have a woman, so we don't take you, but rather like a, we want women to be in the Department of Radiology. There was really excited to have a woman coming to the Department of Radiology. You can just, I can give you a little background that there are only 16 women out of 120 graduate in my class. So you can imagine not many of them out there. And also many of them chose traditional medicine, ophthalmology, dermatology, you know, pediatrics. So no any woman were just choosing or thinking about even thinking about the radiology as a profession. It's fantastic. It's fantastic that the radiology department recruited you specifically and in part because they wanted to diversify and to mm -hmm. have women. That, that's amazing. After medical school, you, you stayed at Chiba University as a radiology resident for two years 
then an otolaryngology resident for one year, and then back to radiology for one year as a clinical instructor. Help us understand those years within the context of standard residency training in Japan. Yes, very unusual. And I think, again, I liked that I had an egg, so I was like specialized to hit an egg MRI. And my professor or chairman back then, Dr. Arimizu, really was so excited to have a woman resident. So he was just a, such a strong advocate for my career, my profession, my mentor, my sponsor. So I was writing a lot of a head and neck report to specialize for head and neck cancer or the informants or whatever. But then I just had a moment that I, I'm writing all of this report, but I'm not quite sure how these are useful to clinicians like, you know, ENT surgeon. So I really wanted to learn more about the clinical view, how they see the imaging as a part of the patient care. So I asked Dr. Arimizu, I want to go, I want to just go to ENT to learn an ENT surgery so that I have a more clinical perspective. And typically that's not happening after you enter residency program, but because I'm always like a seeking for out of box. <laughs> he always supported me. So like, okay, you should do that. I will talk to the chair of otolaryngology. And I made a transition to go to otolaryngology. And I remember I asked him, so how long should I be there? And he said, as long as you like. And it was just so impressive that he had a like unconditional support. But it was a great year that I went there and then I was in the OR adjusting the lights for the uh, professor operating something. And, you know, the surgical anatomy is so different than the radiology anatomy that we go cross-sectional, right? But they go to superficial to deeper. So it's an uh, approach is so different. And I learned a lot. And then there were wonderful people. ENT surgeons just amazing. And they let me operate like a thyroidectomy or a submantibulectomy or a little small surgery. And I learned a lot from their perspective. At the same time, I was in a clinic and, you know, seeing an ENT surgeon, seeing a patient. And in Japan, it's not the same as America that we have like 300 patients coming to the clinic a day. So you have to go every cases for like every three minutes or so for patient. And they just keep going faster and faster. It's a super efficient system, but it's really overwhelming. But then I have to like puncture the tympanic membrane of a screaming child with otitis medias and all kinds of things. And I really enjoyed it. The year was super helpful for me and I'm glad I did it. But after that, and I said, wow, there's so many wonderful surgeons and clinicians. And a surgery is very hierarchical. You are in whatever the year, the class above you, it's going to be above you forever. That that they're more like a teaching you know, junior classes for some technology. And then that's the sort of like the style or the structure. And I said, I don't need to be one of them because there are sort of so many wonderful surgeons out there. I want to go back and becoming a head and radiologist because there's no many head and imaging expert back in Japan or even America. It was just got a new field. So I asked Dr. Arimiz, I'm going to go back to radiology. And then that's how I went back to radiology. And you went back with the title of clinical instructor. Were, were you effectively operating as an attending physician at that point? After- instructor is not as 
sort of like attending physicians, but they are higher level of than the residency because the residency is two years. So once you finish two years, many people go to more subspecialized training. But I think at that one year of autolaryngology was considered to be more specialized training. So I went back to instructor. And I was also doing a clinical trial for gathering in contrast agent and things like that as an instructor. <laughs> but it was really wonderful time that the new contrast agent you know, gathering in DTPA, the first one. And it was just a huge trial going on in Japan. And I was one of the site PI for that study. That's amazing that the leaders in your radiology department gave you those opportunities at that stage. Exactly. Clearly, it was very impactful for you. When did you decide to come to the United States for training? So after a while, I went back as an instructor, just one year but I wanted to really learn hedonic radiology from best of best. And then I had a book called this Computed Tomography and the Magnetic Resonance of a Hedonic, written by Bill Hanafi and Tony Mancuso. And I basically, that was my Bible. I read cover to cover. I highlighted different line marker and I write all these comments and things. And it has to be one of those people. And I didn't know any of them. But I was told the one guy's in California, the other one is Florida. And I said, I'll take a California one because <laughs> closer to Japan, obviously. So that's what I went to UCLA. My doctor, Mizu, professor chairman, wrote a letter to Dr. Takahashi, who were actually at the UCLA back then as assistant professor. So he contacted Bill Hanafi, and this is how I went to UCLA. Fantastic. And was your intent at that time to immigrate, or were you intending to return to Japan after training? No, no. It was just supposed to be one year. I was unpaid. You know, the visiting professor or visiting scholar come from foreign country. I was one of them. And then there's a many of them back then in UCLA, that one guy from Korea, one guy from Taiwan, and I was from Japan. So we have a three Asians sitting in the reading room. <laughs> and then none of them spoke English well. So we start kind of writing a Chinese letter to communicate. Oh, 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 I see. You know, like it was kind of fun that uh, none of us had a strong responsibilities, but they're really, really fun to really see the other culture. And UCLA was just a lovely campus was beautiful. People are so relaxing. I had a great time. Yeah. And, and so you served as a fellow in head and neck radiology at UCLA for a year, but then you became assistant professor at UCLA. How did you become a faculty member so quickly? And what did you do during that year as assistant professor? So that's also a very interesting twist to, to it uh, because I had actually, I took the medical license while I was at the UCLA because obviously I was doing a lot of animal research, a preclinical research because I didn't have a medical license and a lot of interventional MRI, like in a very early pilot phase of interventional MRI that uh I was doing thermal ablation for New Zealand rabbit muscles and then dosimetries and getting MRI images right away and getting a pathological correlations and all sort of things that I carry my rabbit in my cars, <laughs> doing a lot of postdoc kind of things. But while doing this, I study, you know, medical license exam so that I can be a physician. 
and not just a researcher forever. So when I get the medical license, my boss, Rob Lapkin, back then said, you know, you should be a faculty. So he pushed me toward assistant professor appointment with a chair. So I was able to have an office and secretaries and a lot of nice things coming with being attending. <laughs> Yes, sounds amazing. You know, very empowering, no doubt, to reach that level just in your second year in the United States. But then you disrupted yourself and you began a four-year radiology residency at the University of Michigan with a fifth year as a neuroradiology fellow. How did you land in Ann Arbor? Yes. So even though UCLA treated me well being assistant professor, but I didn't have a board of certification. So I have a license, but I don't have American Board of Radiology. And I don't know, want it to be kind of like only being in UCLA, right? So I wanted to be board of certified radiologist. I we wrote a letter to ABR and they said I have to do four years of a full radiology residency. They didn't give me any credit to my experience. Part of that they thought that I was doing all this animal research. So I understand that based on my resume, that looks like that's what I was doing. So they say you have to do four years of radiology residency and I can do UCLA or I could do in Michigan. But between that, I marry. And then my husband was in University of Michigan. So it was mutually agreeable to go to Michigan to the residency program rather than separated at the UCLA versus Michigan. So I think a Dr. David Cole was nuclear medicine. My husband does nuclear medicine and he his boss was David Cole. And I talked to Dr. Reed Dunning, who was chair of radiology back then, and then said, okay, so we'll interview Yoshimi <laughs> for the residency. So your husband was already in residency at the University of Michigan? No, he didn't do residency of radiology, but the nuclear medicine has a pathway. So he did a nuclear medicine training and a fellowship and became nuclear medicine attendings. 13 years passed from the beginning of your radiology training at Chiba University until its conclusion at the University of Michigan. That was quite a commitment and more than twice as long as most U.S. grads would be training and preparing themselves for their Profession, how did you maintain your resolve through all of those years? Don't know, Jeff. Is it having a good time? It just go fast. I didn't really think back and say, wow, how many years? And I think it's maybe expectations are a little different. Coming from foreign countries, you have to learn different culture, languages, and you know, understanding a cultural nuance and how do we behave certain way and different way of expressing yourself because Japanese people tend to be quiet. We're not supposed to say things, but Americans are completely opposite. So you have to kind of make yourself more assertive. And then those kind of things takes time. So compared to, yes, the American graduate, it's, it took a longer kind of detour to get to where I am. But I never felt like it was waste. Everything I did was incredibly valuable, and then I cherished that experience and really grateful for those people who helped me along the way. 
Yeah, no, it's 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 a beautiful statement to you know embrace where you are and and to feel comfortable with it. I'm curious, having trained in radiology both in the U.S. and Japan, what stands out to you as some of the differences in radiology training? That's a great question. I think American system has a more comprehensive way to train the radiologists to broad all area of radiology, which I think is a strength to it. Then and after that, you do fellowship to get sub-specialized to a certain area, either IR or MSK or neuros, whatever. In Japan, I don't think they have that system or luxury to train everybody good at everything. So they sooner or later, after two, two, three years, that they need to, or you can, you have to define your subspecialty. I'm going to be cardiovascular expert or neural expert because you want to be able to support the colleagues for neurosurgeries or cardiovascular surgeons. So in order to do that, you have to be really good at one thing, but may not be good at everything. So the super subspecialization happening much earlier in a phase of training than everything. You do everything and then decide what to do. So doing a full radiology residency at University of Michigan was really phenomenal. I didn't know much about mammography. I didn't know much about, you know, like some of the things like, I guess, IR. I was not doing a lot of angiograms. So it was great to learn the interventional radiology. And so that you basically filled all the hole that you might have in your training. So comfortable looking at the MSK cases or chest cases, but you still have to have your strengths in some area in radiology. Now, after your final year of training, you stayed at the University of Michigan as an assistant professor. After all those years of training and finally landing your first faculty appointment, what were your professional goals at that point? I don't know that I had a clear professional goal, I remember I was so grateful to get a system professor because I think in September, the only two months into fellowship, Dr. Danik called me in his office and you know his assistant, Dr. Danik wanted to talk to you or something. I go, oh my God, what did I do? You know, like it's something bad. Like uh, did I do something that he knows something that I missed? Or and so I was very nervous about it. But then he said, I want you to be assistant professor next year. And like and really shocked me because it was very hard to be assistant professor in Michigan. Michigan had a, such a high bar and then he kept the many faculty as an instructor. So I'm like and uh, so I was so grateful and I just wanted to work hard and being a great neuroradiologist and creating a lot of a collaboration with the clinical colleagues. In fact, I was doing a head and neck tumor board when I was a resident in Michigan because I loved the head and neck and I didn't want to lose when I was doing a residency. So the first year radiology resident goes to head on a cancer tumor board and going over imaging findings. I think there was no one was interested in doing that from neuroradiology section back in Michigan. So, and then they knew me. So when I became assistant professor, like every report, like request, like a, it was a paper request. About the, the, please have Dr. Anzai to read these cases. And it was like a highlighted a yellow marker. 
and a film jacket. When I come back from vacation, I would sit there. Nobody touched this. And I was reading all of these head and neck cases because ENT surgeon trusted me. That is awesome. You know, what what a great message about how, you know, you saw an opportunity, you seized the initiative, even as a resident, and essentially laid the groundwork for your unique positioning as a faculty member years down the line. So, you know, kudos on that. Thank you. After a year, though, you left the University of Michigan and you moved to the University of Washington. What led you to move to Seattle? So that's a long story. I guess there is something to do with more uh, my husband's job, or I guess that there's a lot of uh, leadership changes going on in nuclear medicine. I think a nuclear medicine back in Michigan was just amazing program. We had a phenomenal people there that David Cole, Ritual, Jim Shiston for thyroid cancer treatment. This is really the golden ages of nuclear medicine, but they belong to internal medicine. And then the internal medicine chair went somewhere else. And then the restructuring to bring a nuclear medicine back to radiology. And then there was a lot of political things going on in a higher level. Then a lot of people were kind of uncertain about the future. So many people left. And I think as Satoshi, my husband was looking into other opportunity because he was there for 10 years and he wanted to go to Germany. Yes. <laughs> and he had opportunity to go to Munich Technical Institute. He had a job offer. And I don't know how that guy who don't speak German can be a German professor, but anyway, they did it. They twisted somebody's arm and then he had a job offer. But I was eight months pregnant. And I'm like, I don't want to go to Germany. I don't speak Germany. What if I had a something happen to my pregnancy or labor? How do I communicate? And there's a lot of anxiety provoking moment. And then we found the job opening in University of Washington for both neuro and nuclear medicine. Like, huh, that sounds like a great alternative option is instead of going to Munich, let's go to Seattle. It was coincidence, but I do know that Dr. Kim Marabila uh, back in University of Washington, we had the clinical trial for iron oxide contrast agent. We did it together, so I knew Ken, and also I knew several folks in University of Washington. So it was kind of like a coincidence, but you know, sometimes you may have to not to be in the same places forever. <laughs> I mean, it could have been fine because I had a great ENT surgeon that loved me and then, you know, wanted to work together. But I think there are always opportunity outside of your own institution. It sounds like it was a great opportunity. Was it during the time of Almas as the chair or was Norm Beauchamp chair already? Almas was the chair. And also one of the great things was Dr. Danik asked me to apply for giraffe. Remember the giraffe program? I was 2000 giraffe fellow, but it was interesting that I was really, my baby, my daughter was born in the end of December, but he called me in his office and said, here is a really great thing called giraffe. You should apply. And then like, there's a, you know, it's going to be like a 50% of a research time and whatever. And then the only problem is deadline is four weeks away or something like that. <laughs> and I was 
that my you know belly was so big and I was nine months pregnant, but I have to write a grant in like a four or five weeks and uh, end up you know December and in New Year's. But I made it through with uh, support from a colleague. So I moved to University of Washington with a giraffe fellow. That's terrific. The giraffe is a you know, reasonably competitive program. And you know the fact that you were able to assemble a team and put together a proposal within four weeks while you were in the late stages of pregnancy is you know, just a testament to what a remarkable person <laughs> you are. What was your project? Well, the project was a very strange project. It's actually about acute sinusitis and how imaging could affect the use of antibiotics. So the you know the antibiotics will prescribe pretty broadly, even though there's no clear evidence of acute sinusitis. And then so using that quick imaging study to really eliminate unnecessary antibiotics use. The giraffe program is focused on health services research, and that project sounds very well aligned, you know, with the principles of health services research. Was this your initial introduction to health services research as you became a giraffe fellow, or had you been already doing some outcomes research? Yeah, I I can't remember where this idea came from, but I think Dr. Ella Casaroni was a mentor back then uh, to help me putting all this proposal together, and Ella was just a phenomenal. And I think that there was an issue of antibiotics-resistant infection. So let's just find uh, something in your area which may be a head and neck, sinusitis, and we put something together, get together the information, and I say maybe we should measure the outcome and how that could be potentially extended to cost-effective analysis because there's a huge societal cost of antibiotics resistance infection, opportunistic infections. So we put the whole proposal together and it was funded. So lucky me. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And, And were you able to show through the work that the imaging helped to determine who benefited from antibiotics and who didn't? You know, unfortunately, the trial was negative. The imaging, no matter what imaging shows, the primary care providers still prescribe antibiotics. A part of that, it's pressure from patients and the patient want antibiotics prescription regardless of the imaging study shows. So didn't reach a statistical significance, but we did a randomized control trial. Yeah. Wow. You know, and such an important lesson to learn early on that even if evidence generation is the goal in making medical decision-making, patient preference and those, you know, social impacts, behavioral impacts are unavoidable in the patient care. Now, during your giraffe, you began work at the University of Washington School of Public Health, culminating in you receiving a master's degree in public health after four years. What led you to pursue that additional education at that time? So when I went to University of Washington, I had a tremendous honor to meet Dr. Jerry Jarbick. As you know, he is the king of health service research, and he was really fascinating, phenomenal mentor for me. And he had a the tremendous strong collaboration with uh, University of Washington Public Health folks, and understanding. I got wow, it was, it's, it's, it's so so different. Like what's more 
technology development sort of research. It was new contrast agent, a new pet tracers, and more about the, just the getting a new tool and then see how good they are. And then just kind of like future, it's going to be bright, that kind of things to really completely opposite end of health service research. And then looking at how technology improved the patient outcome or decision-making or cost of the society is like totally opposite end of research spectrum. But I was exposed to the other side of more higher level health services research. And I wanted to learn more. And in order to do so, I published should get a public health, master of public health. So Jerry suggested that maybe you should go to get the degree since you're going to be learning. You might want to get the degree. So I said, okay, I will do it. <laughs> but it was a hard. It was very, very hard. I will tell you because my daughter was like a two years old and then new places, new practice. I was a full-time. I didn't know how to reduce my part-time. So I was always full-time for my career. And then going back to, oh, I have to go biostatistic classes. I see you in 50 minutes. It was really challenging. I can imagine. Yeah, I'm really sort of it tickled and intrigued that, um, you know, you're essentially your two giraffe mentors, one from Michigan and one from Washington, Ella and Jerry, were co-giraffe fellows during my year as a giraffe oh. fellow. So we were all together and they're very great friends and impactful in my career too. So it's, it's really you know, fun how it comes full circle. <laughs> now, four years after arriving in Seattle, you became the neuroradiology fellowship director. And then after four more years, you became the neuroradiology section chief. After building a career for over 20 years and, and focusing on so much in the research and even evolving your research to health services and getting the MPH, what led you to pursue the leadership roles as uh, section chief? Mm. I don't know that I was uh, pursuing that section chief, but there was an opening. <laughs> so if that wasn't opening in front of me. I probably didn't become a section chief, but it was opening. And when I looking all around the people around me, they're like, maybe I'm a qualified <laughs> to lead a section. So I took a risk to just throw my name in the hat. And then obviously, there are a lot of decision by leadership or senior leadership, but they took a chance on me and assigned me to be a section chief. That was Fantastic. I was a, sec a fellowship program director before, and that was sort of like a fit in my personal traits that I'm like a nurturing. I like like helping other people. So the fellowship program director is like having six children, you know, like they have to grow up to becoming real physician or the, the radiologist. And then they have all different strengths and weakness and they have all personal background, social background, and you have to take care of them. And then that fits my personality too. So I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it being a fellowship program director so much. And I did it for a short period of time. I did a fellowship program director and a section chief, but I was too much and I wasn't able to pay attention to the fellow that they deserve. So I decided to hand it to somebody else. The section chief job was quite challenging in the beginning because we have a very senior people back then, University of Washington, 
there for like a quarter century, 25 years or longer. And I was a little bit, not junior, but at the mid-career faculty. And just managing those senior folks was challenging in the beginning because they really didn't think, take me seriously. Part of that is it might be gender or races, but I don't know. I think that they are just that think like, well, she doesn't know. I've been here for 25 years. So there was a little bit of cultural challenges to that. Yeah. I mean, it's very hard, you know, as a you know relatively junior mid-career faculty member to take over a mature group that has senior individuals, not to mention the fact that, it, you know, as you mentioned, you were coming to it as a woman and as an immigrant who wasn't born in the United States. I'm kind of curious, you know, how all of those characteristics led to you organizing the challenges that you saw and and working to build the trust from that beginning point? I think it's really important things to build the trust, as you said, to build a relationship. It's almost like a trust is a foundation of house. So if you don't build a trust and nothing building on the top of it will stay survive. So I think the first few years, I was just talking to them, just getting to know each other, getting them to know me and build the relationship so that we can open to each other, even though they may have a different opinion about certain things. And that was just super helpful. I don't think anybody told me to do so. I felt like I have to do it because without the trust and then mutually supportive relationship, I don't think I could make any difference. So I did it for I think, four or five faculty that was there for 25 plus years. And then they slowly, gradually kind of supporting me. And it was really fascinating. But that turned the courses of the section in a better directions because I think back then we had a problem for not being able to retain the junior faculty. The senior people were been there with some of them are tenured, but junior people were sort of working very hard in a clinical, but then, you know, senior people go away for a couple of hours during the clinical days and so forth. And um, I don't want to speak anybody, anything about, about, about anything, but even it's kind of like a traditional culture that we had back then. But then the junior people feel like they were not supported. So they're evolving door, hire someone and then quit, hire someone and quit. So I wanted to stop that, stop that bleeding. To do so, we need to have a buying from senior faculty. And as I slowly graduate, they were able to help them. And then they were able to, oh, no, I'll cover this. You should go to meeting or you should go get a lunch, you know, get a break. And they were more supportive between junior faculty and senior faculty. So we were able to not only recruit, but to retain those faculty to sort of drive their own academic career. And also I emphasize that a mentorship is more important. So I, you know, we'll evaluate you based on the mentorship, how many junior faculty you're mentoring, how many projects you're working together, how do you support career development, asking, you know, supporting them for grant submissions and so forth. So that's the metrics rather than how many cases you read. So as a senior faculty, your your value is mentoring and is supporting and sponsoring junior faculty. And I think it really made a really positive changes. 
Yeah, it sounds like you really helped these folks to all recognize how they could bring the greatest value to establishing a stable and productive neuroradiology section. I'm curious, who was your mentor to help you, you know, in realizing these strategies and in, you know, setting the direction for your section? So good question. There are many people, obviously the chair back then was Dr. Bosham. He was very supportive of me being trying something different. Dr. Wendy Cohen was also the Harvard Biomedical Center directors in radiology. And then Jerry being more, you know, my research mentor, but it's really great friends for for very, very long time. Ken Marabira has been very supportive of me as well. So I think it's it's more about you will find the people that have a mutual trust or you know, like some like I wouldn't say that chemistry. <laughs> and then you have to deepen that relationship so that you can create. It's not like a something that you write in a contract that I will serve as your mentor for the next 30 years, but rather just to gradually organically developing a relationship because we care same things. Maybe we have a shared goal that you articulate your goal and then they agree with you and agree to help me, then I will help your goal. What is your goal? What are you, how do you like to do? And then how can I support you? And then creating a mutual, agreeable, very positive relationship. And I had a opportunity to do so with many people outside of radiology, even ENT surgeons, radiation oncologists, medical oncologists, or even like health service research sections. So I think if you seek out and find someone that you like or you like to be learn from them, then I think that that's where you get more benefit. It seems that this was really your first kind of major leadership role. And you did this for seven years as a section chief. I'm curious, you know, looking back, what did you learn about yourself, about your leadership through this time? Mm, Great question. I think a leadership is something you learn by doing. (laughs) You learn by experiencing and obviously you will not always make right decision or you may make a wrong decision or we may fail. I think it's important to actually do things instead of delegating everything to other people. That's sort of like my style. I want to put my feet wet. I want to be ground zero level rather than in a penthouse and just understanding what is going on in the operation or clinical reading or research or whatever. And then listen to the other people, learn from them. But at the same time, you cannot be just a democratic way of voting. (laughs) Sometimes you need to make a tough decision that some people may not like. But as long as you are, you're getting all the information from others and also introspect that that was right or wrong, I think we can still make a progress rather than not doing anything. So to me, it's progress is always something that we should aim for. And the status quo is not workable, particularly in the current situation that things change so rapidly. We want it to be agile. We want to be change maker. 
even though you may fail something, but at the still better than not doing anything and then the world is changing and the you're left behind. So I'm a little progressive woman. I told like, I'm like a co- insurance company. I'm progressive. I think it's probably a good idea to have the mentality that I will take a risk as long as we incorporate all the information to make a conscious decision. Now, after 15 years in Washington, you moved to the University of Utah. What prompted that move? Again, so my husband became a chair of radiology, and obviously I could just send him away and stay in Washington, or I could just go with him to be a supportive wife. And I obviously chose to be uh, the family together. And also Dr. Vivian Lee was the senior vice president and dean of school medicine. And she was so inspirational. The way that she was trying to do the value-based care, that, you know, value of care rather than just the doing things to get paid more. So she was like, Yoshimi, we're going to transform the healthcare. It's like, oh, I'm going to be part of this great initiative. So I basically didn't think twice that uh, I will probably go to University of Utah. Yeah, what a great opportunity. You know, it seems that your transition to Salt Lake City marked a strong pivot in your career transitioning away from neuroradiology leadership and into a broader role as Associate Chief Medical Quality Officer. How did your interest in healthcare quality develop and evolve to make that position possible? So I was doing a quality work at the University of Washington as well. I was a chair for Quality Safety Committee in the radiology department and also I represented radiology for the hospital, some called MQIC, Medical Quality Improvement Committee. So they're the representative from surgery or ICU or nursing. So I was part of that in addition to being a section chief. So I was doing, I, well, I always thought like quality is not a sexy thing that people not dying to do, but I think it's important for the patient care. And somebody says, anybody wanted to be quality safety committee chair? And I was raising hand, like, yes. So, you know, I didn't ask for any time or additional payment. So that was a stupid of me, but I thought that was important and I want to learn from them. It wasn't so completely opposite, but the changes were, I was more in academic sort of side of faculty development, faculty career, mentorship, research, clinical operation for newer radiology to bigger health system role, which is quite different, a different culture too. And a goal is also different that we want to make sure that the patient care get done smoothly, effectively. So it was a different culture. Well, certainly there was the Kind of big cultural shock. My culture of Seattle to Utah is another thing, but the culture of academic side to health system operation is another huge difference. So it was, yes, a big pivot. Yes, you're right. And what were your responsibilities within the role of associate CMO? Associate CMO, I, I was very closely worked with the chief medical quality officer. So he was an internal medicine doctor. He was a hospitalist. So radiology is not their mind and typically because it's a medicine surgery sort of like a operate the health system as you know but where you come like completely different aspect of academic neuro radiologist it was very intriguing experience 
Obviously, we had a issue for cost control back then, back in 2015, 2016. So we rolled out some something called the value-driven outcome, which is internal system cost. My role is to provide those information to frontline care team so that they will make a decision based on the dashboard metrics and then also measure the relevant clinical outcome so that the cost and outcome are kind of seen in a, the same single pages value video dashboard. And then we want to have a stakeholder from those each clinical condition to really engage in what metrics, what major matter to your patient, what major you wanted to improve. And then putting into the outcome and equality and cost together, it's a huge undertaking. <laughs> Obviously, I learned that some of them are successful and some of them didn't make a differences. But I think important things is almost like a having that the frontline providers buy in that you trust the data because oftentimes the physician don't trust the data. And if your data looks good, then they trust it. But if your data doesn't look good, then it's like, well, there's something wrong with it. And then there's a lack of trust is really difficult to make progress. So that's something that kind of uniformly apply to many areas in our life. Yeah, there, there's a lot to discuss and unpack about you know, what you just said. And I want to return to that. I want to hear a little bit more about the work that you've done in value. I want to ask you first, though, a little bit just about the pivot that you made into health system-wide leadership after a career that was principally centered within the radiology department. W- was that difficult, making that pivot so that you were principally working with a lot of people that were non-radiologists and ha- leading them in that role? I think so. It was a challenging. It was very variable. I have to learn what primary care physician thinking. I have to learn what the ED physicians are concerned about. I have to learn nursing team's perspective or scheduler, pharmacy, all of those, the people that I never even, you know, get to know or even talk to them, right, outside of ENT surgeons and neurosurgeons in my career. So it was a pretty wide, eye-opening experience. And also there are a lot of meeting, right? There's a lot of a C-suite meeting and board meeting and dashboard and, and minutes and metrics <laughs> So it was a lot of like initiative, a lot of alphabet, like what abbreviation, what is this? And, you know, it, it's, a, it's a lot of things. But uh, I always found that's uh, opportunity you learn. I know that uh, sometimes like, why am I doing this? But it's uh, something that you have to find a joy doing it. But it was great. Uh, looking back, it was great experience for me that now I know how health system leaders are thinking and are concerned about instead of creating a, like a living in a bubble, right? You, you're in a bubble for school medicine, then the health system, and a, we are, they are, then finger pointing each other. But rather, I was in the both end, so I now understand that there are issues or their goals, and then the understanding of school medicine side or faculty side. I think those are great opportunity. I, I really learned a lot. 
Now, shortly after assuming this new role, you were recognized by the American Association of Medical Colleges with the Learning Health System Research Learner Award and the Learning Health System Research Champion Award in consecutive years. What did you do to earn this recognition? I don't think it was me. It, I was just representing University of Utah for this value-driven outcome program, which is not just a me, but a, I was tasked to write and apply by Dr. Vivian Lee. So, Yoshimi, you have to apply this. And so I got, sure. <laughs> uh, but I really represented uh, hundreds of all people that worked on developing the tools and analytics and the physician that really engaged in the task and the program. So I actually told in that kind of hour, the reception or things like that. I, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm the one, I, I didn't really develop this video. I, I was just a sort of a championing and to provide the information to frontline provider, but uh, now I, you know, somebody else developed this program. I just wanted to make sure I don't get whole credit for this. <laughs> but it was a good recognition for University of Utah to be recognized by WMC. And the second year was a price transparency tool. That again, it was important to understand that cost to the patient is cost that they have to pay, not necessarily health system cost or payment from payers. So because of the cost journey that I had in University of West Utah, we said, what mattered to the patient? And it wasn't anything to do with the health system cost that we care, but rather how much do I have to pay? And then that is the important question to them because they need to make a decision as to whether canceling a vacation because I have to get this test or I may have to do surgery. And then the challenge is not just the being expensive healthcare, but lack of transparency. The patient do not know, and you have to sign up for surgery or test without knowing how much it's going to cost. And the healthcare is the only business we do this terrible way of, we'll send you a bill later. And, and that strike me as to, we have to do something about this. Because you can think about mortgage company has, you know, good face estimate and dentist to give you how much most likely you're going to have to pay. But radiology or even medicine, that we don't do that and unless the patient seek information, which is very difficult. So we developed the online interactive estimate tool. It's an estimate, not a real number, but I think this is the rough estimate of how much you have to pay based on your insurance, copay, or benefit. And that was really great work the OBS revenue cycle team has developed. I was more advisor role to say, let's just make it more easier for patients to understand what that means, the contrast, like CT scan of abdomen with dye or something along the line so that they do understand what that means. And then people will choose because the target was not an insurance company, but rather patients. Yeah, no, I mean, I think clearly you were really at the forefront of some of these patient-centered 
uh, tools and and taking that perspective. And as you've beautifully articulated, you know, costing in particular is something that is very much uh, a construct that is relative to the person that is experiencing those costs. And, Mm -hmm. you know, very different between the patient and the health system and society and every stakeholder. So really beautifully articulated and, you know, taking a step back, you know, this recognition from the AAMC centered around the concept of being a learning health system. And so did you see the University of Utah as a learning health system at that time? And if someone asked you, like I am now, what makes the University of Utah a learning health system? How would you explain that? That's a tough question. I think University of Utah is very unique in a way that we always wanted to improve the care of patients. And we do so many, many institutions, that's a lot of research, right? NIH fund, there's so many billions of billions of dollars of research, but not translated to improve the care of the patient. So as you know, learning health system is a big goal, but let's just make that the time, not a 15 years, but a shorter so that we can always learn something and implement it in a clinical practice to see if that works or not, and then bring it back to the research team and see this wasn't working as you expected in the research randomized control trial, maybe because we need to have some other underlying confounding variable that we didn't care. And so that we can actually feed between different stages of translational sciences so that we feed each other, but it really implemented it sooner in a clinical practice in a meaningful way. And oftentimes the, you know, cultural difference exists between implementation science of frontline clinical operation to researcher because a researcher wanted to be accurate and valid and precise. So they want to kind of fine tune everything to be perfect and ROC of 0.95 is not good enough. So let's just make it 0.9A. But sometimes that little marginal incremental improvement may not really make a meaningful differences, but rather they just make implement something that maybe not perfect, but a good enough, good enough data to create some sort of a more faster translation so that we can get that some sort of preliminary data back to the research team. And I think that that connection is really critical. University of Utah is aware of that such a need, just like many other institutions, but really creating a like a pipeline of those systems is very important for us so that the, we will leverage all this research funding into improvement of the patient care. Yeah, that's well said. Now, after six years in this role as the Associate Chief Medical Officer, your title transitioned to being Director of Value and Safety for integrated enterprise imaging. And what strikes me most about that title change is the substitution of quality for value. Can you help us understand the basis for that shift? Part of that is radiology at the University of Utah is integrated, fully integrated to health system. So that is the big system changes that we are no longer a department but it is part of the integrated health system. It's called Imager. 
integrated management and governance of enterprise imaging in radiology or something very long name. But I think really the kudos to, you know, our chair, you know, typically radiology is viewed as ancillary services or non-patient facing services that, you know, Jeff has a chair, you may really experience that, like a viewed as another essential. We've been kept telling the leadership that the radiology is a core and essential services that will be touched every patient coming through the door. Even dermatology, ophthalmology, we do imaging for those patients too. So it cannot be just the A department, but the health system need to support the radiology as a core services. And then that is the creation of an imager, enterprise imaging. And I was tasked to more looking into efficiency, which is affecting the cost, quality, and the safety of radiology or the imager operations. So I think it's a little bit more focused back to radiology or imaging operation than health system role. But I think it's that's where that my strength is. So it was a good transition. And also, Dr. Vivian Lee left, and my immediate boss of CQO also left in the middle of the pandemics. So there's a lot of leadership changes. And I felt like if I want to go back to more radiology-specific operation, this is the opportunity. This is the time for me to switch. And I, I'm glad that I was able to kind of like a pivot again to the more radiology focused imager operation of imaging services and efficiency improvement of qualities, but still having a little bit of higher system view because we are very integrated to entire health system. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, you know, establishing value, particularly as centered around the value that imaging contributes in healthcare is a goal that is shared, you know, by many, you know, nationwide and worldwide, but often so elusive and so challenging. How do you approach this? How do you define value, you know, within the context of healthcare and radiology in your pursuit of establishing the true value of imaging? Yes, it's challenging. I think we want to make sure that we were doing things that improve the patient care, but oftentimes we don't have a control as to what imaging studies are done because ordered by clinicians. And as you can see everywhere in the nation that imaging is becoming almost like a physical examination. They were doing imaging to triage patients' decisions rather than talking to patients understanding what is the issues and then creating a clinical differential diagnosis and then see how they work that, but rather imaging it's more upfront. And then in that scenario, it's very difficult to know that what imaging study would be better for this patient. But because of that, imaging is really the key point of entry of every patient coming to the system. I think we just need to be very assertive about eliminating a wasteful imaging study or imaging study that do not bring a value to the provider. And we need to, again, build that relationship, understanding their need, 
and guiding the right decision together rather than not to do it or tell them what to do. And I think that that takes a bit of effort, but just thinking about radiation and also financial implication to the patient. If we know the imaging study doesn't add much, then we should not to do it, even though we get paid. That's the hardest of things to do. And also, maybe there are studies that are, we are underused, and we need to focus on those, bring a value, but somehow not use in the current system so that we find the more opportunity to do a right study. And I like to talk to clinicians, they're calling and say, hey, we have this patient, so and so on, and this, 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 and what kind of imaging study should we order? And I always welcome those phone calls because that is the chance that I can serve as a consulting role as to what imaging studies should be done. And I usually kind of be nice to them and say, thank you so much for calling. I really like those kind of phone calls. <laughs> but really, we need to create that bigger picture, like how do we make the imaging study, this precious resources to be used more effectively? You know, oftentimes these efforts to establish value and, and even within the context, as you were describing, trying to manage overutilization or underutilization, it feels like a qualitative pursuit. Mm-hmm. You served for a few years on a value measurement and analytics steering committee. And, you know, for an outcome that can be so hard to measure and quantify, how did you approach establishing value measures and analytics? Mm. Yes, those are very hard, but I was doing that as an entire health system. So including surgical specialties, cardiovascular services, and so forth. So they typically had something that they wanted to improve. And so what is it you wanted to change? And for example, it could be a blood management. The cardiovascular services had a like a standard protocol for 10 packs of RBC, 10 packs of FEB, 10 packs of platelet for every single cases that are coming to OR, regardless of predetermined risk. And that is a huge waste of blood product. So let's just think about, you know, how we doing in the past, getting a baseline data and I say, how you want to approach that? And then having the team to come up to certain protocol changes. If you have a this, 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 this patient needs still 10 packs of all the blood. But if you have a this, 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 you need to only this. So if you have this, you don't need any of them. And then creating a, some sort of a simplified way of clinical decision making. And then see how much wasteful blood was saved. So that's one great example. But you really have to have some tangible things that you want to improve. Radiology is very difficult because <laughs> diagnostic radiology, we don't order them, we just read them. And then so that passive side of just a reading scan is very difficult to make a differences unless you are actively involved in a kind of care pathway that, uh, well, if you have this, you don't need to have a CTPE study. But you could say it and you could write it in a guideline, but may not be followed. So <laughs> 
<laughs> That's another challenge. Yeah, I mean, that is essentially the kernel of the challenge of measuring value in radiology in that, you know, we have that same behavioral overlay that you described around your giraffe project as to whether or not patients would accept not having antibiotics if the imaging suggested it wasn't necessary. You know, for us, we make recommendations from imaging studies, but ultimately the treating physician, the managing physician makes decisions about how to use it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we just can't get away from that, you know, sort of utility function aspect of the use of imaging by our stakeholders. Yes, absolutely. That's going to be a challenging for diagnostic radiology. No matter how often we say migraine patients do not need a brain MRI, but they still get it. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how to fix that, Jeff. Maybe you can have a better idea than I. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be a longer conversation. So, so, so within your your current role as director, I'm curious. You know, as you sort of look ahead to the next couple of years, few years, what are your primary priorities? What would you like to accomplish? I like to. I mean, there's a many things, uh, but because you cannot boil the ocean. You have to have certain high priority items. I think we really have to improve the radiology workflow. And I'm sure that many places they already start doing this because we were sort of still doing old fashioned way of scrolling images and then, you know, making observation, describing findings, and then putting an impression in a narrative way. But more technology advances and more images, more reformats, more pictures. And then there's just, just no way that we can continue to do the same business or same practice as we've been doing. So we need to have a, some sort of more organized way to say how to gather information. Because what we're doing is the extracting information and then putting it into the clinical context. So that's the sort of value that radiologists provide because the CT scan will spit it out the whole kind of thousands of images, but we are the one extracting the relevant information from huge data set. And how do we effectively do that? And that is the big next few years of a focus would be how do we make our job more meaningful and enjoyable. So you talk about AI, machine learning, deep learning, all of the software is out there, try to do one things and maybe not the other things, but we need to have some sort of way to help radiologists. We need to have something that make our job easier, faster, accurate, and then joyful. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it sounds like you're angling for another pivot where your focus is turning more internally and the value that you are defining is the value to the radiologist in accomplishing their work, which, you know, I mean, you've kind of, you know, come full circle, you focused on the value to the system, you focused on the value to the patient and having attention to the value to the radiologist in helping them to do the work that they're doing effectively and joyfully. You know, I love that principle <laughs> is a great goal. And I look forward to what you accomplish in that in these next few years. Now, for, for years, you have assumed roles that promote the role of women in radiology and healthcare in general. 
You chaired a program for women in radiology for nine years while at the University of Washington. You were president of the American Association for Women Radiologists and have served as the chair of the AAWR membership committee for the past 18 years. And for the past four years, you've co-directed a program of women in health medicine and sciences at the University of Utah. I've had the privilege of speaking with many strong and inspiring women leaders on this podcast, but few lean into formal roles in support of women in healthcare as strongly and consistently as you have. What leads you to prioritize the development of women in radiology and healthcare? A great question. Thank you so much for the comment. I didn't even recognize those kind of things that I did, but the woman as I became radiologist and being wife and mothers, there's so much to do outside of work. And it may be because I'm a Japanese and I'm married to a Japanese man that who don't do hardly anything other than work or focus on your, you know, things. Uh, I mean, well, no, he does certain things, but not as much as I do. And I realize that the expectation that women have at the work is no different. You don't expect a oh, woman should be 20% less RBU than a man or a woman, well, it's hard to take care of three kids so you can have a 20% less publication. We don't have any of those. We have the same expectation, but then you have a, so much other things waiting for you when you go back to work, uh, go back to home. So I always felt like, why is it? And at the University of Washington, when I would start thinking about women in radiology, I listed all the things my husband does. And I listed all the things I do in a kind of Excel spreadsheet. And obviously, we both professional radiologists, and he was vice chair for research. So he does all the work and in research and grant and publications and all of these things. I do some work. Of course, I do some research, not as much as he does, but, you know, educations and all the other things that work. But beyond that, there was a lot to do with coordinating my nannies and finances and income tax and all of the things that, you know, not necessarily, it's almost like a chore that somebody have to do has come to my lab. So I was like a long list of things that are coordinating gardeners to whatever the services and somebody coming in to check the houses, then I have to be available and it just feels like this is overwhelming. And we, I don't, I, I knew that I was not the only one. I know that many women do this, but not articulating or expressive like I was. So I can be the voice for them. So I can speak up those things so that, that they feel like, yes, I have the same experience. And then that's a, how a woman in radiology started at University of Washington because we didn't have a many women. And also, sort of a little bit of evolving door. You kind of like join a faculty, but in a few years, like, no, I can't do this, so quit. And I hire another person, and then they quit. So we didn't really retain women faculty in the department. So it was really great to have some sort of like a social network. So it was meant to be just a small kind of social gathering so we can kind of talk about things that we don't talk at the work. And then just being like a voice or heard, you know, we hear you. I have a same experience and this is what I do. And I share the knowledge or experience 
and just to feel good about each other. But it became more organized later on to invite a speaker from outside and then getting more knowledge or, you know, how to do it and what kind of task or the experience or training program is available. So it becoming a little more substantial later on. But it was the beginning was just a really networking sharing a pain and <laughs> suffering experience and how do we do that and also get to know each other because sometimes radio's department so big we don't really see each other so being able to see after work over you know cheese and wines and a little bit of appetizer was really lovely thinking back to 2005 when you sort of began this formal journey of leadership on behalf of women in radiology and healthcare how do you feel that the needle has moved for women in radiology since then? I think women have made, women in radiology have made quite a bit progress in the last 10 years. I think there's still more to go, but when I hear or talk to someone like Dr. Ann Osborne at University of Utah, that I was the first one, a only woman in the room to where we are, and then just to seeing a project, like a trajectory of where we are, I think a gender balance has been made a quite a bit of substantial progress in the past. And I think it will continue to do so, having so many amazing women in our field. And also, I think it's really important to have a man to be on the same journey. I think it's really a critical point that a woman's progress cannot be achieved just by women. We always have to have an ally that uh, really understand the value of gender equality. So I always wanted to have a man to coming into AAWR or a women's event because men need to be there so that we can make a progress as a whole, not just a woman talking about women. And when you go back to co-mingle, then you don't talk about gender issues. So we really think it's a gender issue is our issue, not just a woman. Same things for the racial ethnic diversity that we often put those EDI to be more minorities, but that is not the right way in my mind that we want to have everybody to kind of think about how do we use the diversity as a tool to improve our inclusive culture. So it has to be everybody else's, everybody has to be on board. But that's that's sort of like my ideal state in the future. No, I mean, it's a great goal. And, you know, even though we've made tremendous progress, radiology as a medical specialty remains having a particularly low number of women radiologists. And if you could wave a magic wand... What changes to the profession would you create to rectify the gender disparity amongst radiologists? Hmm. Magic wand. I think it's really great to have more strong women that leader in the visible positions because the overall number is getting better slowly, not hugely, but you know, it used to be 24%, I was 27, 8%, but that's just a kind of incremental. But I think we need to look at the women to be more visible positions because of medical students looking at that chair or vice chair or program director. 
And if you don't see anyone look like you, then you don't imagine you will become one. So you want to have women that is more visible position, not just having a, as a head count. And also thriving, like having great time, right? Because if you're stressed and like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing. And then that's not really a great role model. So you want to have a woman leader that are excited and always like having great time at work, even though work is always challenging, just like anything in a medicine, but really able to engage people and inspire other people to follow your footsteps. And then that would be the magic one that I like to see. If you create so many women like that, then a medical student say, I want to be a radiologist. I want to be like them. And that's the important piece that、uh, we like to cultivate. Okay, great. In addition to serving as president of the AAWR, you've served as president of the ASHNR, the American Society of Head and Neck Radiology. And the Association of University Radiologists. What have you learned from serving in these roles as president of these organizations? That's a great question. I think it is privileged to serve as a president of organizations, but then you learn there's so many people in the organization, and you have to enhance the goal for. Different society or different subsection of groups. So, understanding organizational structure, who are there, what they care, and then incorporate those opinions into annual meeting or organizational strategy or missions. Those are very you know, important skills, but they, yeah, it's very Labor intensive, I would say. <laughs> But it was a great, for example, it's a different organization has a different sort of missions. SHNR is a head and neck radiologist society. So it's relatively uniform. Everybody cares about head and neck radiology and how do you improve education and research mission. So we are pretty much aligned from the very beginning. AUR, on the other hand, is Completely different. It's very diverse perspective. As somebody who are more care about the chief resident to medical student education, the program director, to health services research, to chair. So it, it is a very diverse concept and that multi stakeholder involvement for entire meeting. So, but that's the strength of the AUR too, because we have a, such a broad stakeholder involvement into the one organization. So, how do we kind of taking each stakeholder's input, but the yet very cohesive way to run that society in a year and also creating an annual meeting and make sure that everybody f e e l that their voices are heard, they belong to them, and empower them to bring some new idea. And so I enjoyed all the meeting being serving as a president. AAWR is also different, right? Because we have a gender equality issue and we want to move forward with gender equality, salary equities, or you know, maternity leaves, all the different sort of agenda. But you learn that it really just having so many different expertise in your team. And then how do you make organization to make? Good decision or a meaningful decision for your membership. Because we, no matter what 
society that you lead to, you're serving for membership. So what our membership want is always very fundamental questions. It's, again, wonderful learning opportunities and also privileged to serve as a president of organization. Amongst all of your institutional leadership roles, I'm interested in how you feel that societal leadership complements and you know what competencies maybe have you taken from societal leadership and then be able to apply to enhance your effectiveness within the organization? Mm-hmm. That's a very deep question. I think it's you know, many things, but I think of most important things is really listening because everybody has their own opinion about everything, right? Because we are, we always had our own perspective and views and judgment and in values. But I think really understanding multi-stakeholder like organizational structure society that we really have to listen to what chief resident wants, what chair needs, or what the program director is concerned. So the listening is a great skill for any position, any leadership. And if you get that and then master your listening skill, I think you are halfway through, more than halfway through. Super important. Glad you made that point. Now, I see that you're currently the secretary of the American Society for Neuroradiology. What are your responsibilities within that role? It is more about the board is always aligned with each other and then make sure that I support president of ASNR and also, you know, understanding a membership needs, but board really pushing agenda forward and also the the staff member really make it happen. So the logistics are handled by the staff member, but really the organizational goals and strategies. So I don't think a secretary has that one. Obviously, we support the president and make sure the minutes are approved and all of this. But beyond that, I think we need to see where we're going. What's the challenge? What might be the a threat to the organization? What? we should be doing that we're not doing or we are doing something that we shouldn't be doing. So it's sort of like a lot of reassessment or where we are or where we're heading. Yeah, I, I find it interesting to look at the differences amongst all of our subspecialty societies. And as you've highlighted, the ones you've been involved in are all very different from one another. And, you know, it's interesting sometimes to look under the hood. And I recently, you know, was looking at the ASNR's research committee, and I noticed that it lists 83 members. So I'm wanting to ask you if you can help us understand how an 83-member committee pursues an agenda and gets things done? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I sometimes wonder about that too. I believe in terms, all this leadership role or committee members, we should have a term to do, like, you know, term for three years or whatever, and renewable twice or once or twice, whatever. And so have at least some definable period that you contribute to something. And then after that, you move on or you leave so that the position will be open to other people who haven't done a role and that creating a pipeline of whatever the skills or committees experiences but not all the organizations have that specific definitions i do think i mean 
I'm happy to step down from the research committee. I have been in a research committee, but you know, I think it probably they need a more reviewer for grant and publications, abstract. So I think that might be the reason. But in general, not just specific for SNR, but in general, I think it's a healthier to have a term for any leadership role because you have a kind of steep learning curve. And then, you know, to some extent, maybe you are not seeing what you don't see and other people coming to the plate and you'll find different perspectives. So that would be a healthier for organization to have a different leadership once in a while. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I mean, the idiosyncrasies of societal governance are are fascinating. (laughs) With what feels like progressively increasing clinical demands on radiologists carving out time for academics is increasingly challenging, particularly for young academic radiologists. What advice might you offer to young radiologists who are inspired by all the ways that you manage to contribute, both within your home institution and on a national stage, but for them, they're struggling to find the time to pursue a similar path? Mm. That's a really big challenge. And then don't know what is the best things, but I think sometimes that people feels like work or life, right? So work life balance. But in our world that we're living in, it's more work life integrations. Work and life are not mutually exclusive, like a you know, in a good old days, a bad old days, whatever, eight to five for work and after that you're gonna be a life or a home with a family. But now with all this technology and then the world is moving forward faster and faster. We need to have a work-life integrations and not necessarily mutually exclusive. Sometimes you do things that maybe help both, right? So I think we need to have a, some area that you're passionate about, whatever you like, because we can't just say, hey, write a paper or write a grant to somebody who are not keen about doing research. Writing grant is not for everyone. So you need to find what do you what do you what makes you think it's really great day for you like you know oh i had a wonderful day what that day looks like what makes you happy and joy and then to pursue that just a small area not like a doing okay you have to do research and administration then you have to take a leadership role and it seems to be overwhelming because the way the clinical volume has increased but just the one things that makes you happy what that might be, and then align that with whatever the role in a department or academics or even semi-private practice, they can do something in addition to just doing clinical work. And that could be a path to something that you can continue for a long time if you feel that is something you wanted to do. Perhaps we can spend just a bit of time discussing your life outside of healthcare and academia, the, the part of the integration that is the life part. Tell us about your family. You mentioned the birth of your daughter. You mentioned your husband. How many children do you have? I only have a one. And I had a two miscarriage before her. So uh, she's a miracle child. (laughs) You know, I thought I was never going to have a 
child of my own. So it's it's just a very special to me that I had a one. But I wish I could have a, like a two more. <laughs> Even though I know it takes a enormous effort to do parenting, but yeah, so that she's a single child. And I had a married Satoshi, my husband, for 31 years, long time. And that's great. That's a, such a blessing. <laughs> yeah, no, par- parenthood and family is a blessing. How old is your daughter now? She's 23. 23. Okay. In college then? Yeah, look, I graduated college, so she's just looking into what the next step might be. But the finishing college in the pandemics wasn't the best part of it because a lot of time was virtual. And obviously, it would have been different if you were in campus for four years. But yeah, she did a many, a vast majority of them in a virtual. So I think now she wanted to look at the other world, maybe go somewhere else and so I'm very supportive of whatever she wanted to do. That's great. Are you able to spend much time together as a family, the three of you? We try to. We try to in the weekend. Obviously, weekdays are very hectic. We wake up like a six or even earlier and then end up with six or seven. So it's a long day. But I sometimes to try to incorporate like lunch or quick coffee together with my daughter. And because I work so many things in the later night, I don't feel guilty going to like a pedicure (laughs) four o'clock in the afternoon because I'm going to pay back anyway later. So it's okay, right? I mean, that's what I think. I don't know. I should be saying that public, but. (laughs) It's okay. (laughs) That's great. That's great. Now, I also want to ask you about your sister because you mentioned early on how she played such a you know, fundamental role in your self-view as you were growing up and such. Is your sister still in Japan or did she come to the United States? So um, fortunately, she passed away. I know. She had a pancreatic cancer. And when she diagnosed, she had a liver metastasis for the stage four. She was a really kind soul. Wow. Yeah, I'm really... Sorry for that loss. You know, it seems that with your father and your sister losing two people so close to you at a young age, that's very difficult. You've you've really you know you've you've weathered some some family tragedy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. What about things that you like to do when you have spare time outside of the hospital or outside of work? You mentioned getting a pedicure is a joy. That's <laughs> Phenomenal, but you know, whether other activities, how do you unwind? What hobbies do you pursue? Well, I try to do like a core exercise. I don't like to sweat, so I don't like to go cardiovascular treadmills, and that's not my things. I don't like to run, so I don't do jogging. But there is something like a more combined Pilates and yoga to like a pure bar, the very core fundamental strength exercise. That's what I like. So if I have a time and I will take a classes and then just to try to make internal muscle strengths. And the one reason is that it's, of course, you feel better after exercise. But two, the old woman, typically the one of the risk is fall and a fracture. So if you have a core strength in that core muscle, you're probably less likely to fall. I don't know. I'm trying to be preventative for <laughs> my old ages that any can, anything could happen. But it's really good to have that core strength. I don't need to be muscular or anything, but really having this good balance. 
Are you exercising every day? No, twice a week. But if I travel, that I don't do. So maybe more like a 1.5 days a week. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, it's good that you're doing it. And it sounds like you've got a great reason for doing it. Despite the challenges for U.S. radiologists and academic radiologists in particular, the United States is arguably the premier country for opportunities within radiology. Having created a remarkably rich career after growing up and completing your education in Japan, what advice might you offer to would-be radiologists around the world who are considering the substantial effort and investment to pursue a career in the United States? Mm, Great question. I think important to have a dream that you wanted to do something. You want to pursue something and then just believe in yourself. And and then you have to work hard or you have to deliver something, right? Because you can't just do deep service. <laughs> I think I learned earlier that every opportunity, you may turn somebody off, right? If you don't deliver, you're just getting a title or position, but you don't execute. That would be potentially harmful for the future. So if you're taking the responsibilities, I think it's important not to just sit in a title, but rather execute and make a differences. And I think that that mentality is very important to do something good, not just for yourself, but for your team or for organizations or department or division that you're leading, help them. And then I think you need to find the joy of helping other people, because if this is just a, again, deep service, it doesn't last long. But if you feel like your trainee became attendance in major academic institution, you should be very proud of yourself that you did something good. <laughs> Terrific. Well, Dr. Yoshimi Anzai, I wish that everybody could have seen your face through this conversation because it is a smiling face always. And you really exude the joy that you speak of being so important in being able to drive yourself forward for this integrated um, work life that you spoke of. Your journey from Japan to the United States and the remarkable accomplishments that you have achieved are a true inspiration. And I can't thank you enough for sharing your journey and your stories with us today on Taking the Lead. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. This is so, so wonderful. And I'm really, I'm honored to be part of the program. So thank you so much for inviting me. Please join me next month when I speak with Dr. William Brody, Professor and President Emerita at Johns Hopkins University and the Salk Institute for Biological Studies. An accomplished electrical engineer and physician, Dr. Brody pioneered the development of digital radiography, ultrasound, and MRI systems while serving as professor at Stanford University in the 1970s and early 1980s. He co-founded Digirad and Resinex, leading Resinex as president and CEO for three years before becoming the Martin Donner Chair of Radiology at Johns Hopkins University. Following seven years in that role, he served as provost at the University of Minnesota before returning to Johns Hopkins as university president, a position that he held for 13 years. 
This was followed by a term as president of the Salk Institute for Biological Sciences and subsequent roles as board member and advisor to numerous companies from large public corporations to small startups. A member of the National Academy of Engineering, the National Academy of Medicine, fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the ACR, and recipient of the gold medal of the Radiological Society of North America, the depth and breadth of Dr. Brody's influence on radiology and healthcare as a whole is unparalleled for its unique focus and impact. Taking the Lead is a production of the Radiology Leadership Institute and the American College of Radiology. Special thanks go to Anne-Marie Pasco, Senior Director of the RLI and co-producer of this podcast, to Port City Films for production support, Linda Sowers, Megan Swope, and Debbie Kakal for our marketing and social media, Brian Russell, Jen Pendo, and Crystal McIntosh for technical and web support, and Shane Yoder for our theme music. Finally, thank you, our audience, for listening and for your interest in radiology leadership. I'm your host, Jeff Rubin, from the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Tucson. We welcome your feedback, questions, and ideas for future conversations. You can reach me on Twitter at G-E-O-F-F-R-U-B-I-N or using the hashtag RLITakingTheLead. Alternatively, send us an email at RLI at ACR.org. I look forward to you joining me next time on Taking the Lead. Taking the Lead.